2: And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 45. This is the second in our chronicle of the events on the Italian front in 1915. This week, I would like to highlight the show's Facebook page. I started a new series of posts on some of the sources used by the show that I will be posting to Facebook on a weekly basis. It goes up every Friday, and it is a great time to discuss some of the best books out there to learn about the war. Last week, we discussed a lot of setup information with how Italy got into the war, their leader General Luigi Cadorna, and the description of the area in which they would be fighting. This episode, we will start by discussing the overall plan for the Italians, followed by looking at some of the first skirmishes in the area, which occurred before all of the Italian troops came into place. We will then close the show by chronicling the events of the First Battle of Isonzo. Before we talk about the Italians, though, let's take one last look at the Austrian preparations in the area before the attacks began. The Austrians weren't idle as the Italians began massing troops for the attack, and the first decision, as we discussed last week, was to withdraw from the flatlands into the higher ground behind. They also began to evacuate the villages and farms along the Isonzo River. This was more to make sure that there wasn't anything in the way of defensive preparations, and to prevent refugees from getting in the way and clogging roads vital to keep the army going. This, I just want to make sure that, you know, maybe humanitarian aspects weren't the first reason for this, but I'm sure it did play a role, we're not calling these people monsters. They were able to evacuate the majority of the population at the points where the battle would be occurring, but they crucially would not evacuate the village of Gorizia. They suggested that civilians evacuate the town, but they did not force anybody to leave. This had some nice side effects early in the fighting, with it still being a functioning city with facilities like bars and restaurants, which officers loved to go to. But it would later have some very sad effects that we will talk about next week. While the Austrians were moving civilians out, they were moving more and more troops in. Right up until the beginning of the battle, the Austrians were bringing in men, and this included five more divisions moved in from Serbia and three more divisions moved in from the Russian front. Their commander, General Borovic, wouldn't arrive until the opening skirmishes had already started, and his belief in the absolute defense would be at its best right at the beginning, when every foot was both not defended as well and not attacked as strongly as would happen later in the war. In a bit of an interesting fact, when the fighting started, the Italians believed that there were far more Austrians than there actually were, believing that there were 100,000 men, when in fact there were only 25,000. Later in May 1915, right before the first attacks, there was sort of a flip-flop, and then there was then more Austrians than the Italians thought, with 200,000 Austrians manning the line. Now, I don't think knowing how many austrians there were would have really changed what the italians were going to do but they may have changed their preparations or maybe attacked different locations with more strength but even with this whole not really knowing how many defenders there were the italian advantage would still be very strong being four to one along most parts of the front from the beginning of the attacks throughout the entire year four to one is is a lot um Mostly on the Western and Eastern Front, you never approach numbers close to 4 to 1, so the fact that they were able to maintain that along the entire front that they were attacking is pretty impressive, and also, you know, makes you question why it never worked. The overall plan for the Italians was to advance against the Austrian positions around Trieste. The Austrians would choose to make the battle on the area around the Asanzo River. The primary targets were the towns of Trieste, which we don't talk much about, and the town of Gorizia, which will be central to all of the fighting on the Italian front during the war. It was necessary for a few other things to happen before the Italians could advance directly onto their two primary objectives. On the northern flank, they had to make some progress in pushing the Austrians out of the mountains and high passes, this was critical because it would prevent the Austrians from being able to threaten the flank of any further attack to the south. Cadorna planned to have the 2nd Army complete these tasks before the primary attack was launched. There would in fact be several attacks in the north before the full forces were unleashed, all of which we will discuss here in just a moment. Another area that would be attacked would be the Mersely Ridge, the objective, another objective of the Italian 2nd Army. Capturing all of the ridge was important, but the most important was the southern end of the ridge, which would be the one of the direct threat to other attacks. In theory, the second army would push through these mountainous areas and meet on the other side with the third army, which would advance through Trieste and then turn north to meet them. Cadorna believed that these smaller early attacks would clear the way for his great offensive, and it would be nice and easy. In Caporetto and the Isonzo Campaign, author John MacDonald would summarize the Italian strategy as, quote, Throughout the Isonzo Campaign, the Italian strategy could be summed up as attack and advance, whatever the situation, end quote. And that's exactly how it would play out. In 1915, the only time that we will discuss the Italians' defending is from an Austrian counterattack to try and retake gains from an Italian attack. Before we get to those major attacks, though, we first have to talk about a set of small attacks that would begin early in June 1915 with just seven divisions. Now this is way smaller than the Italian army will be later, which is why I'm calling them small attacks. They weren't supposed to be massively successful, they were just supposed to capture some jumping off points that would be used later. It it didn't go so well. After the declaration of war, the Italians slowly inched forward towards the front. They were very cautious because they weren't sure exactly where the Austrians were. They reached the Asanza River on May the 26th, and once they reached the river, they ran into their first problem. A shortage of proper bridging equipment meant that they couldn't cross right away, and this problem wasn't helped by the fact that the Austrians had flooded as much of the eastern river bottom as they possibly could. Because of this, and the importance of the mountains, the first skirmishes of the campaign were launched to the north, as the Italian mountain troops engaged the Austrian defenders. The 4th Corps of the Italian 2nd Army were the primary attackers in this region, and during the first days of June they attacked against Mount Kern and the Merzerly Ridge. The Italians attacked again and again, up the steep mountainsides, gaining nothing but lengthy lists of casualties. They suffered heavy casualties day after day, and by June the 4th they had run out of ammunition and had only gained a few hundred yards. They took a bit of a break to rearm, and then on June 16th they made another attempt. But this time, it would be different. Six battalions of the Alpini scaled Mount Kern at night to launch a surprise attack against the defenders. I haven't climbed too many mountains in my day, but I'm pretty sure climbing it at night severely ups the difficulty. But that's what they did. The Alpini charged the Austrian lines and overwhelmed the surprise defenders early in the morning. By 5 a.m., Mount Kern... All 7,410 feet of it were firmly in Italian hands. This was a huge success for the Italians, and they knew it. The leader of the assault group would receive the bronze, medal, the gold medal for bravery, the highest Italian military commendation. It would, however, be given posthumously. 32 silver and 79 bronze medals for bravery would also be given to the troops in the attack. So much of Italy's successes on the Isonzo front would be fleeting, lost in counterattacks soon after they were gained. But Mount Kern would prove to be different. Taken during the early skirmishes, before the first real offensive, it would be kept in Italian hands for almost the entire duration of the war. Further to the south, the Italian attacks were proving to be far less successful. The first effort was made around the village of Plava and a hill called Hill 383. This hill was the first major obstacle for the Italians in the central sector, and they really needed it to be captured so that the full offensive would not be hampered by it. It would soon take on another name to replace the rather bland hill 383. It would be called the hill of death. The hill controlled the path to advance against the positions around Garizia, and everybody knew of its importance. When the first attacks came, though, the Austrian defenders found themselves outnumbered 6 to 1. Throughout the entire day of June 11th, the Italian attackers came forward, and at 9.30, their final attack, and their largest attack, was launched. Yelling Avante Savoy, the Italians jumped out of their trenches and charged, but the surviving Austrian machine guns caused havoc among the lines of advancing troops. After an entire day of fighting, the Italian troops were exhausted, and couldn't even make it to the Austrian lines on this last attempt. On June 12th, there was not any rest. Seven more times, the Italians tried to take the Austrian lines, and each time, the waves got a little closer, like the waves advancing up a beach. But they never got close enough. The fighting died down for a few days, until more troops were brought in, and the attacks began anew on June 16th. While in the earlier attacks, the Italians had never been able to fully capture the Austrian lines. They had pushed the two sets of trenches very close together, which made it difficult for the defenders, who had to somehow whittle down the attacking numbers faster and faster as the lines got closer and closer together. And now, with new fresh troops on both sides, this was the biggest problem. During the attacks on the 16th, the Italians were finally able to reach the Austrian lines and push the defenders out in hand-to-hand combat. This was a great triumph for the Italians, who had been attacking for weeks to achieve this objective but unfortunately for them, it would be short-lived. The very next day, on June the 17th, early in the morning, the Austrian troops counterattacked and surprised the sleeping Italians. The Italians were pushed off of all of their gains that they had made. The loss of Hill 383, after it had been in Italian hands, would be devastating. And for the next six months, the Italians would spend attack after attack, trying to recapture what they had lost on June the 17th. The loss of Hill 383 would be the end of the preliminary attacks, and the next time the Italians would be attacking, it would be part of the wider offensive. The official Italian history of the war calls these opening skirmishes, quote, the First Holocaust, and that's pretty accurate. The Italian history also says that there were 11,000 casualties from these attacks, but most historians think that that number is far higher. On the other side, the Austrians suffered somewhere around 5,000 casualties. All of this fighting and dying had happened, and the Italians hadn't really gained much. And what would come to be known, the First Battle of Asanzo, sort of the first battle of the Italian front of the war, hadn't even started yet.
0: Traffic jams
1: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The plan for the first battle of Asanzo would involve a lot of names that we've already talked about. Cadorna didn't have all of his men ready for the first skirmishes, but now he would, and he thought that it would make all the difference. For what would become known as the First Battle of Asanzo, the Italians would have around 200,000 men on the front line, and they would outnumber the defenders by about 2 to 1. On June 21st, the orders were given for the first attack, although the offensive wouldn't start until June 30th. The battle would add the unseized objectives of the earlier attacks onto its own objectives, which would be new and stuff we haven't talked about yet. Hill 383 would be attacked again. Uh, There were actually a few earlier attacks planned for 383, which would be launched before the main attack, but the Italian commanders were aware that these may not work, and if so, Hill 383 would once again be attacked with maximum effort on June 30th, when the rest of the offensive was occurring. The main effort of the attack was in the Garizia sector, against the hills and villages protecting the town. These were just as critical as Hill three hundred eighty three when it came to actually trying to capture the town at a later date. The Third Army, to the south of Gorizia, would attack between the Carso and Monfalcone. Mount Saint michel would be important during the first battle, and there would be many attacks against it. However, it would not take on the critical importance that it would have in the second, third, and fourth battles of the Isonzo. Attacks against the four locations that I just outlined. Hill 383, Gorizia, the Carso, and Mount Saint-Michel will dominate every episode on the Italian front for pretty much the rest of the war, so get used to hearing their names. For my part, I'm just happy that they all have names that are so easy for me to say. Before the attack would begin, there would be a massive week-long artillery barrage that would hopefully soften up the Austrian defenses. The infantry that would then attack would not have been out of place in the early Western Front battles. They carried with them very few machine guns, no hand grenades, they didn't have any trench mortars backing them up, and when they did move, they would be moving forward in densely packed groups of men, just waiting to be hit by machine guns. Essentially, they would not have any of the advances that we have seen in the attackers on the Western Front during the first twelve months of the war. Nice and early on the morning of June 23rd, the artillery barrage began. The Italians heavily shelled the Austrian positions, or at least in the vague direction of the Austrian positions. There wasn't a huge emphasis put into bombarding specific targets in the defensive line, it was more just like, shoot in that direction. Part of this was simply the fact that the Italians didn't know exactly where the targets were that they needed to focus on and part of it was just because the Italians thought that the sheer weight of the artillery fire would be enough. The Austrian positions were hit a lot by the bombardment, but the level of destruction of the defenses was pretty low. On June 24th, the barrage was heavier all along the front than the day before, and it started hitting one very specific target, the monastery on Mount Santo. The basilica in the monastery was a Slavic national treasure, and it held a portrait of the Virgin Mary that was important enough that people made pilgrimages to the monastery just to see it. When the shells started hitting the monastery, the monks had to quickly evacuate, and they were fortunately able to grab the portrait and take it with them. By the end of the day on the 24th, the monastery was in ruins, which is sad given its age and cultural significance. For five more days, the bombardment continued along the front, but the Austrian infantry were usually safe in their positions, although it did cause a critical lack of sleep and a shortage of food and supplies, since it was difficult to bring them up to the front lines. When discussing long bombardments, which is what we will do a lot over the coming years, the lack of sleep and general exhaustion factor of the defenders is an important aspect to keep in mind. During these long, heavy bombardments, it was sometimes difficult to get new troops up to the front line to replace those under shell fire, and after a few days of being kept awake by the endless gunfire, the soldiers' abilities began to naturally degrade. Also on June 24th, there were more attempts against Hill 383, eight of them in total. Over the next three days, more attacks were launched against the hill, with no success. Every time the Italians would charge the hill, they would be thrown back by the Austrians. A few times, they even managed to get into the trenches and fight hand-to-hand with the defenders, but to no avail. This is how the hill got its name, the Hill of Death. (laughs) There was a lot of death. After the main attack started on the 30th, attacks against the hill would continue for the duration of the battle, but none of them would make any difference. On June the 30th, the main efforts of the 2nd and 3rd Armies would be launched, and in the north, it meant that the Italians were once again trying to capture the Austrian positions on the Merzeli Ridge. For two days before the attack, there was rain, and on the ridge, that meant that the normal steep dirt and rock slopes turned into a muddy, slippery mess. And this just compounded the fact that the Italians were trying to attack up the hill against strong enemy opposition. With all of these difficulties, the Italian attacks on the ridge made little progress. The most ferocious fighting of the battle took place near Gorizia, in a line of fighting that ran from Mount Sabatino in the north through the villages of Oslavia and Padgora, and ending on the Carso at Mount Saint-Michel. The commander of the defense of Gorizia was Major General Erwin Zeidler, who had made his career as an engineer in the Austro-Hungarian army. When he arrived at the front, he demanded, and he got, the resources he needed to drastically strengthen the villages of Oslavia and Podgora, essentially turning them into fortresses. Under his command was the 58th Division, made up primarily of Serbs and Croats from within the empire. Zeidler and the 58th are given a lot of credit for maintaining the defense of Gorizia for a staggering 29 months that they were in the area. During that time, the 4.5 mile stretch of line that the 58th defended would become one of the biggest obstacles for the Italians, even though it was often a very close run situation. One of the problems that the Austrians had was the fact that how the defensive line was situated made it imperative that they hold onto every single spot in the line. Even if one major position fell, it might result in the forced abandonment of the entire line. On the 30th, the Italians moved into attack shortly after the artillery fire stopped, and what they found was that the bombardment had barely touched anything, and the machine gun positions in the villages were fully operational. The Italians did a very good job in the attack, though, and managed to get into the villages of Oslavia and Podgora, but in the house-to-house fighting that ensued, they were driven back. In the days of fighting to follow, the Italians were never able to get back into the villages, and had to eventually give up the attempt. The biggest reason for the failure of the Italian attack in this area was the great job done by the Austrians of the 58th Division in building up the defenses around Garizia, and the simultaneous lack of the ability of the Italian artillery bombardment to neutralize them. One area that the Italians did have some success in during the first battle was on the Carso. The area that would become so important to later attacks saw maybe its most successful attacks right here at the beginning the Italian 19th and 20th Division were able to push the Austrians back and get a foothold on Mount Saint-Michel. Saint-Michel isn't a large mountain, just 250 meters at its highest, but with its position, it provided the Austrians with a perfect point of observation and a well-defended salient into the Italian lines. Positions on Saint-Michel could easily rain down fire and death upon any Italian attacks nearby. If the Italians were not able to capture it, any Italian attack in the future would be blunted by its position and influence. On July the 1st, the Italians tried to take care of the situation by pushing the Austrians off of it. Unfortunately, the first attacks didn't go so well. In the White War, Rinaldo De Stolfo, who was a junior officer, is quoted as saying, quote, In a whirlwind of death and glory, within a few moments the epic Garibaldian style of warfare is crushed and consigned to the shadows of history, end Stoffo is referring to Giuseppe Garibaldi, a general during the wars of Italian unification, and the style of warfare that took place back in 1866, which as we have covered quite decisively to this point in the war, was very much dead. Over the next few days, the Italians kept attacking Saint-Michel, And while in other areas this action generally just led to more casualties, here it put more and more pressure on the defenders. Too much pressure. On July the 4th, the Austrian commander reported that the situation was desperate, and further Italian attacks were likely to push his troops off the top of the mountain. While further Italian attacks began to make good progress up the mountain, they were never able to reach the summit, as the Austrian commander feared. But the foothold that they did make on San michel would set them up for the next series of attacks during the second battle. On July the 5th, even though the men were exhausted, Cadorna ordered all of the attacks to continue, and for two more days the same order would be given. After making very little progress on these days, the offensive was finally called off on July the 7th. The Official Italian History says that there were about 13,500 Italian casualties, but most historians think that the number was probably more like 20,000, but I've seen estimates that are even higher than that. Overall, there is very little confidence in the official Italian accounts in the historian community. There is a variety of reasons why they would deflate these numbers like this. On the Austrian side, the casualties were probably somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000, so they were doing a reasonably good job. A high portion of the casualties, when compared to other fronts, were wounded and not killed. This seems to be mostly due to those razor-sharp rock fragments that we talked about last week, that were shot everywhere by explosions. For all of these casualties, on the Italian side, very little had been gained. In the north and center, nothing of great importance was captured, and in the south, where the line was pushed forward, it was hardly enough to justify the effort. Cadorna refused to accept any blame for the failure, and continued to believe that his plan was just fine, and it was the generals and the men that just weren't seeing it through with enough vigor and determination, which was categorically false, but it was because of this fact that the second battle will bear so many similarities to the first. But that's for the next episode. Next week, we will have our third Italian Front episode of the year, and we will look at the second, third, and fourth battles of the Asanzo. Thank you for listening, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week.